0: mentioned NORAD. Uh, We need the F-35 jets um, for the Arctic. We need, uh, you know, to beef up our uh, military presence there um, and so many other things. Uh, Russia's claiming the seabed rights right up to our territorial waters. Yeah. Uh, And we have no capacity uh, to counter it. We've got no submarinal capacity. We've got no um, technology capacity to counter it. And you know, people who occupy those spaces, you know, are the ones who are going to control them and, and exploit them.
1: Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. And welcome to the Back to School podcast. Parliament is back in session. Yet, we're going to take you on a tour. We're going to go around the world with the Honorable Michael Chong today, talking about foreign affairs, talking about issues that Canadians should be watching. Obviously, some communities like Ukrainian Canadians are gripped by the war in that country. So, we'll start off there. But, what global issues will impact Canada? What global issues? will impact the Western democracies, Canada and our allies, that we should be aware of as Canadians. We are so fortunate to sleep under the blanket of security that geography and our proximity to the United States has given us, but we are a global player. We have played a role in the world, and we must continue to do so. And our guest is a perfect example of that. Michael Chong was first elected to Parliament in 2004, and he represents the area he grew up, Wellington, Halton Hills. In 2006, after a couple of years in opposition, Michael joined the cabinet of Prime Minister Stephen Harper as president of the Queen's Privy Council and minister of intergovernmental affairs and sport. Over his distinguished parliamentary career, he's also chaired several committees of parliament from industry to heritage to official languages. He's also been a passionate advocate on the environment. Being a founder and member of the all-party Climate Change Caucus since its formation in 2011. Prior to to his election, Michael had great jobs in the private sector. The last one was Chief Information Officer for the National Hockey League's Player Association. And before that, he was a Senior Technology Consultant to the Greater Toronto Airport's expansion at Pearson Airport. He's also had a civic mind. He's one of the founders of the Dominion Institute, now known as Historica Canada, which has brought the Memory Project and stories of service and sacrifice in our history to young children, making sure that they're aware of our rich history. Michael has a degree from Trinity College at the University of Toronto, and he lives on a farm in Wellington County. I know this because I've had calls with him when he's been on his tractor, the gentleman farmer from Wellington County, and he's married to Carrie Davidson, and they have three sons. The final thing I'll say, when I ran against Michael for leader in 2017, I really grew a deep affection for Michael, his family and for his passion for the country. And we did so many events in that leadership that we could recite each other's stump speech. But Michael's was truly the most quintessentially Canadian, because he talked about his late mother, who had been liberated by Canadians in the Netherlands, and his late father, who on the other side of the world was liberated by Canadians in, well, defended by Canadians, I should say, in Hong Kong. Both of them came to Canada and produced a young patriot in Michael. So welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast, Michael Chong. Great to be here, Aaron. (laughs) Now, I quoted part of your leadership's stump speech. Do you remember mine? Yours was so much more compelling.
0: I I do. I remember you talking about... uh... General Motors and uh, Oshawa and Durham and uh, growing up in a community that rooted you. Uh, so I do remember that well.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, by the end, we could almost substitute one another in and give our stump speeches. But yours was truly incredible. And what a story of Canadian identity to have parents that had come to Canada, both of which had been touched by the impact of, of Canada playing an act of role on the world stage absolutely you
0: know we forget that this country for a long time has been a beacon of hope to people around the world it's why millions have come to this country to make new lives for themselves and you know we've got to remember the principles on which that hope is based a fundamental belief in freedom democracy and the rule of law and uh, that's what you and i fight for every day on uh, parliament hill
1: Absolutely. And um, the work you did with the Dominion Institute, bringing those stories, remembering the Battle of Hong Kong, remembering the liberation of the Netherlands, obviously rooted in, in your background. And we're going to go around the world now talking about how our interests and values are are at risk in many parts of the world. Now, we're taping this just before return to Parliament. You're the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs for the Conservatives. You've been doing a fantastic job. I can't remember who gave you that job at first, but you've been doing a great job. <laughs> and I'm assuming you will be in that job. But in case anything changes by the time this comes live, we're doing around the world with Michael Chung. and I will say at the outset, um, some parts of the world are critically important, but to keep this under an hour and a half, we're going to not talk about some of the opportunities and challenges in in Africa, in some parts of, of Asia, and in South America. We're going to focus on the big hot spots, the first of which is the war in Ukraine, which is now over half a year long. We just celebrated Ukrainian independence a few weeks ago. I was in Oshawa. And in Kiev, there were no parades. But President Zelensky pulled out some burned out and hollowed out Russian tanks to put on parade in the main square. Um, What are your thoughts on how that war is going? What Canada should be doing? And really the timeline that you might think this war can take?
0: Well, what? many thought would be a short brief war dominated by russia's military machine has turned out to be anything but and i think it's clear that since the invasion began on february 24th this has turned into a much longer war and a war of of grinding attrition on both sides and so i think going forward what's critical is that uh, we do two things that Western allies continue to support Ukraine with the provisionment of military equipment uh, and other resources. And secondly, that we cut off the funding for Putin's war machine. Um, it's clear that Putin can only do this because of massive amounts of uh, cash infusions that he's receiving from, frankly, Western economies. Um, you know, I read a report uh, just recently that since the war began, uh, about 150 billion euros of energy has been purchased uh, by, uh, by countries outside of Russia, predominantly in Western Europe. So we have to cut off the source of those funds. And I believe that begins by the Canadian government, the Trudeau government approving liquefied natural gas projects so that we can export our natural gas to Europe to displace Russian natural gas. Uh, which is currently funding the Russian war machine,
1: one hundred percent. And what's interesting is the natural gas projects, particularly on the east coast. And there were there were three. There were there was uh, Saint John, New Brunswick. There was a uh, a, a project in Nova Scotia, um, and GNL Quebec, of course, uh, in the Saguenay. That I was a big fan of because uh, of their plans to have the lowest emission LNG facility in the world. A lot of those projects were not only discounted by the Trudeau government, but were essentially shelved because of the uncertainty and capital costs that came with the Trudeau government's bill, C-69. Will they essentially have to unwind some of their own legislation before any of these projects might see capital getting invested in them? I
0: think so. I think that it's clear that Uh, major energy companies are not going to make the billions of dollars of investments with the current regulatory framework that the Trudeau government has put in place, it creates a great deal of uncertainty. You know, recently, the uh, head of the Natural Gas Association in this country was asked whether there was a business case for exporting natural gas to Europe. And he said there was an incredible business case for exporting natural gas to Europe provided the government cleared the regulatory hurdles. Um, You know, it wasn't that long ago, just over a decade ago, there weren't any significant LNG export terminals anywhere in North America. But in the last several years in the United States, they've built uh, over half a dozen LNG terminals that are now exporting Canadian natural gas, ironically, uh, and American natural gas to Europe, helping to replace Uh, Europe's dependence on Russian gas. But we have yet to build a single uh, LNG terminal in this country of any scale to export our natural gas. We do not have a single LNG terminal that's operational right now that can export any quantity of gas. And the, the ridiculousness of this situation is that we are not only the fifth largest natural gas producer in the world, have the longest coastline in the world. So it's not like we're a a geographically isolated country that doesn't have access to blue water. We have the longest coastline in the world. We have plenty of locations where we could site these facilities. But because of this government's uh, obstinance, uh, we've not yet built any LNG terminals that are operational and non- are on the horizon uh, because of uh, their regulation. So they need to reverse these policies if they're serious about defending the NATO alliance, if they're serious about Ukraine's independence and sovereignty. This is the single biggest thing Canada could do to assist Ukraine, and that is to export large quantities of natural gas to replace Russian gas in Western Europe. That would cut off Putin at the knees and cut off the funding for his war machine.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Two things on that. I'm glad you used the example of the business case being made by industry. Prime Minister Trudeau (laughs) said, there's no business case for LNG investments in Canada. You know, I, I'm not sure he would know a business plan if it fell out of a tree and hit him. Um, But I've met with three different German ambassadors over the years talking about whether it's the Goldboro project that was in Nova Scotia, there is a huge demand for gas. And particularly when uh, Merkel and the Germans decided to phase out nuclear, they really were becoming dependent on Putin. And they knew that, but it it was cheap, it was easy, it was good for their industry. Well, now this war could be prolonged, and even though building this LNG capacity, uh, we're, we're several years behind because of Bill C-69 and Trudeau policies, it is still needed. Um, and we, as you said, the fifth largest producer, we're one of the few reliable rule of law democratic producers of oil and gas in in, in a large you know, industrial levels that that have access to both Pacific and Atlantic markets. Really, it's us in the United States. So why would we not be doing it? Um, The equipment, you know, before we leave that, the Magnitsky sanctions have been an important symbol, and it's been both conservatives and liberals that that have helped make Magnitsky sanctions a reality introduced by a conservative bill in the Senate adopted by Minister Freeland. But those are more symbolic impacts on some of the the, the sort of Putin loyalists in Russia. This energy uh, strength he has is really what's fueling the war regime. And so what you're saying is we need to go past the Magnitsky sanctions and take their economy out at the knees.
0: Absolutely. Look,
1: the Russian economy
0: is smaller than the Canadian economy, and it's overly reliant on exports of oil and gas. Um, In fact, about a third of Russian GDP uh, comes from the oil and gas sector, and it's their source of hard currency, their source of uh, cash to fund the war machine. And so if we are truly serious as a smaller country about supporting Ukraine, that's the single biggest thing we can do. It's to displace Russian gas in Western Europe. And these projects need not take five, 10 years. Uh, The only reason why they take five to 10 years is because in Canada, the Trudeau government has put in these regulatory hurdles that make no sense. Germany announced the construction of two new LNG terminals days after February 24th this year. And the German economic minister recently said that those terminals are expected to be operational early next year. So if the Germans, which are not an energy producer, can build two new LNG terminals in the Baltic Sea in about 12 months, surely Canada, the world's fifth largest natural gas producer, with immense technical and engineering expertise in natural resources, surely we can build terminals and infrastructure within 12 months too, in an emergency that we're in right now. So there's no reason why this can't be done quickly. The issue here is a lack of political will. It's not a lack of business acumen and engineering expertise, uh, financial resources, it's not the lack of a business case. It's a lack of political leadership from our prime minister who is dangerously naive about the role energy plays in the world.
1: Absolutely. Lack of a political will and really the culmination of virtue signaling politics where they can just uh, think we're moving beyond uh, oil and gas at a rate that the world is simply not moving beyond it. And Why would we displace Democratic, reliable, um, you know, high human rights, uh, high environmental consideration resources like Canadian. Um, it's that gap is going to be filled elsewhere, whether it's through through Putin or others. The business case was there, particularly for the Quebec Saguenay project, because Warren Buffett was an investor for a time until the rail blockades and the general approach of the Trudeau government made it clear there is no path to return on investment. So you these billions of dollars that need to go into large scale investments will only come if there's an environment that regulates appropriately, but welcomes that investment. So I'm, I'm Thanks sure so. that will be a, a key element of our and, return to parliament. And, and Aaron, uh, the other,
0: the other important factor in all this is that it's good for the environment. It's good for the environment. Exporting natural gas from Canada is good for the environment, here's why. About a fifth of the world's emissions come from coal-fired electrical generation plants. That's according to data from the International Energy Agency in Paris. Coal requires double the emissions to produce a kilowatt hour of electricity compared to natural gas. And Europe is currently burning coal because of shortages of electricity on the continent. And so, by exporting greater quantities of Canadian natural gas to Europe, we can displace coal fired electrical generation plants with natural gas electrical generation plants. And that, in turn, will cut emissions in half from those plants. And look, we have a case, a good case study here in Ontario. We shut down Nanticoke, uh, a coal fired plant on the north shore of Lake Erie. Some time ago. And it led to a huge, not only a huge reduction in smog days in the province, it led to a huge reduction in emissions. And we replaced a lot of that production with natural gas. uh, And that's why Ontario's managed to reduce its uh, emissions from electricity. So it's good for the environment for us to export gas. It's not a long term solution over the next 50, 60 years, um, but in the transition to a non emitting uh, future we need to have gas displace coal.
1: 100%. It's part of a smart transition to a lower carbon future. Um, The year Ontario dropped coal generation, which I think the province has has a lot to be proud of being able to do that, relying, as you said, on natural gas and on nuclear, we accounted for 0.7 percent of coal generation around the world that year that that happened so the map of coal use particularly because of the growth in indonesia and parts of china and asia more broadly didn't even register so um, as the developing world needs energy for a higher quality of life we should be trying to substitute it with Canadian resources. But if we're going to get around the world, we can't make this an energy podcast, although you're uh, an even deeper policy wonk than me. You could go on for an hour on each of these topics. I will, before we leave here, though, the passing of Gorbachev does sort of show the the end of history narrative at the, the fall of the Soviet Union, which Gorbachev is associated with, certainly for a time led to... The US being the one global superpower. But now we're in a, a great power environment again. You see Russian invasion of its near abroad in Ukraine. And of course, the Baltics and others are worried. But China, the other great power, the growing economy, now with a, a, a capable blue water navy, now with interest in the Belt and Road project, the other great power has eyes on Taiwan. And we've seen tensions. Uh, in that part of the world. Talk about that for a moment, and really what Canada, in your view, should be doing alongside our allies to put checks on China's ambition and, and potential aggression towards Taiwan.
0: Larry well, uh, It's I'm glad you raised this topic of China, uh, because I think Canada is particularly at risk when it comes to a potential invasion by China of Taiwan. Uh, what what China is, what what Russia is to many European economies, what uh, it's to the United Kingdom, China is to Canada. And what I mean when I say that is that uh, when the sanctions were applied by Western allies on Russian companies and individuals and on the Russian uh, Russian organizations, uh, it had a massive impact on. European econ- European economies, European companies, companies in the United Kingdom. Um, but it didn't have a great impact on Canada because we're not very trade exposed to Russia. But that's not the case with China. You know, when we when look at what happened, uh, one of the major oil companies in Europe lost almost $10 billion because they had to write off their investment in Russia when the sanctions hit. Uh, There are countless other stories of companies losing billions uh, in the withdrawal. And we all know with what's happening now with uh, European energy shortages, particularly gas shortages. So what what Russia is to Europe, China is to Canada. And I think the business community here needs to be more risk aware of the fallout that's going to take place uh, if China invades Taiwan. There is no doubt that sanctions are going to come into force. Um, And if companies are unprepared in their business planning for that potentiality, then I think they're, they're not being prudent. And so um, we are particularly vulnerable. And I think it's a discussion we need to start having now because many analysts predict that by the time this decade is out, China will have attacked and invaded Taiwan.
1: Yeah. We we've seen early comment when Russia what I like to say, extended their invasion of Ukraine because they've they been occupying Crimea for many years. But when they launched full invasion, it led some commentators to say, this is going to move up the timeline of China's ambition with respect to Taiwan by several years. So I've seen some estimates between the next three and five years, the sense that there will be uh, an invasion. And President Biden has kind of sidestepped a few times the concept of strategic ambiguity, meaning they'll supply Taiwan with military equipment support. We saw Speaker Pelosi's high profile trip there, which uh, was praised by by both uh, some Republicans and Democrats for, for not backing down in, the, in the, the face of threats. But Mr. Biden's team had to walk back his comment that he would respond to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Speak for a minute about that strategic ambiguity, what the United States has been doing with AUKUS and the Quad, and is there a role for us to play to help bolster a Western initiative to prevent an invasion?
0: Well, let let me start with the final part of uh, the point you've just made, the question you just made, and that is that Canada has a role to play, but we haven't been playing that role. Um, And the role we should be playing is working more cooperatively with our allies in the Indo-Pacific region, particularly in terms of defense and security. And that means increasing our defense budget to 2% of GDP, which is our commitment under the NATO alliance. Um, And in doing so, we can ensure that we can more fully participate in security and defense in the Indo-Pacific region. But because we haven't been doing that, we've been cut out a lot, out of a lot of the security and defense planning that's been taking place. We've been isolated as a country. And this is particularly concerning because we are a large, Pacific-facing nation. And, you know, when you look at the recent treaties, uh, AUKUS, the... Submarinal treaty between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, Canada was completely blindsided by it and cut out from any discussion surrounding it. Uh, When you look at how the United States now is working much more closely with Australia um, on defense and security in the the Indo-Pacific region than with Canada, uh, when you look at the fact that we're not part of the quadrilateral security dialogue, which is an emerging um, block of countries that includes India Uh, Japan, the United States, and Australia uh, whose purpose is to counter China's threats in the South China Sea. Uh, When you look at all these initiatives, Canada simply isn't at the table and not invited because we're not pulling our fair share of the weight. And so, The role we should be playing is to step up to the plate, fulfill our international commitments when it comes to defense and security spending, and work constructively to join these initiatives where we can play a, a strong role in providing a a unique perspective and ensuring uh, that we counter China's threats in the Indo-Pacific region. You know, with respect to Taiwan, I think it's clear that President Xi's single life goal is the reunification of Taiwan with mainland China. I think when you read his speeches over the years, when you read the analysts uh, who've monitored his Pronouncements over the years, it's clear that Taiwan is his single lifetime goal more than anything else. And it's supported by the fact that the Chinese military is massively working to increase its amphibious capabilities uh, to cross the Taiwan Strait. As it stands right now, they probably don't have the amphibious uh, capabilities to sustain an invasion of Taiwan. But analysts predict that within a short few years, they will. So when you put this all together, it's clear that an attack of Taiwan's likely to take place um, before the decade is out. So we need to start thinking about what a Western response will be. I think it's gonna be very difficult for the United States to directly uh, counter an attack on an invasion of Taiwan. Um, The US is far away from the Taiwan Strait and its military capabilities um, can't be matched by land-based military capabilities that China will have right next door to Taiwan. So I think it's likely going to be a, a more of a, a naval engagement where the US Navy um, engages in uh, blockades and other um, tactics to uh, punish China for its uh, attack on Taiwan. I think sanctions are going to be, uh, a huge role. You know, I'll just finish uh, this thought by saying this. If you look at all the major economies in the world, they're characterized by one unique uh, characteristic, which is that about a third to half of their economies are for export. And they, com- they import a commensurate amount. So if you look at Germany, Japan, China, China, you know, 30 to 40% of what they produce every year, they export and they import a commensurate commensurate amount from other countries, except the United States. The United States is is a unique, not only one of the world's largest economy, it's unique in that it's almost autarkic. It only exports about 10% of what it produces and it only imports about a 10th of what it consumes. And so in that context, the U.S. will rely, I think, heavily on sanctions, to punish China for any aggression toward Taiwan and for a country like Canada, which relies, you know, whose economy is 30 to 40% exported every year and a commensurate amount imported, you know, we're particularly vulnerable if our business community hasn't thought through the implications of sanctions on China, like we've seen on Russia.
1: Yeah. That, that uh, ends your point on how you began it, which is we will face economic challenges by large scale sanctioning of China post invasion. So the invasion takes place, we ramp up Western sanctions in a similar fashion to what we've seen against the Putin regime in Russia. It will cause pain in Canada in terms of uh, job losses, less investment, you know, uh, supply chain disruptions that we've already seen bad because of China's zero COVID policy. But this is really the only vulnerability I see with Xi and the regime in Beijing, in that they have an advantage controlling their near abroad, Taiwan, and and having that land presence that the United States doesn't have. But the singular goal of the Communist Party is to ensure that there's not civil unrest, or wide uh, scale unemployment, dislocation, starvation in a very hard to govern large populated country. So massive sanctions could actually impact that uh, social cohesion in China and cause the regime problems, but it would have to be sanctions at a a large and a sustained level. So the same risks Europe is facing from their sanction regime, we have to be prepared to face in order to, to really call the bluff on China. Would that be a fair statement?
0: Yeah, I I think it is a fair statement. You know, one way to look at it is look what happened to McDonald's in Russia. McDonald's had to write off its investment. It had to completely shutter all of its operations overnight in Russia and abandon all of its stores and all of its uh, workers. It basically packed up in a very few short days and left. Uh, And so for Canadian companies that have investments in China, Um, That's one of the things they need to be doing contingency planning for, Uh, because if China invades Taiwan, there's no doubt that sanctions are going to be a huge part of the Western response. Um, And I think that's been proven by what's happened in Ukraine.
1: And tying into our first segment, uh, is there a certain irony that through the Trudeau government's investments in the Asian Infrastructure Bank, we have actually helped pay for pipeline development in other parts of the world, yet we're not positioned to, to, to help Europe. We, we've almost enabled the Belt and Road Project for, for China to gain influence in developing countries and around the world. Should we, alongside our allies, be pulling out of those things and, and providing a a Another option to these countries, rather than just being beholden to Beijing.
0: Oh, absolutely. The irony is that we've not only done that, uh, we've we've now acknowledged the Trudeau government's, in in effect, implicitly acknowledged its mistake of joining the the Beijing led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank because the G seven has announced a rival bank that they're going to be setting up to counter the malevolent influence of the this uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, So clearly the government should never have joined it. President Obama asked the Trudeau government not to join the bank and they naively disregarded his his advice and and joined it and now I think it's clear seven or so years later after they made the Trudeau government made that decision to join that it was a mistake um, and I think the G7's initiative to create a, a rival bank uh, to counter the AIIB is proof of that. So my view is we should be withdrawing from that bank. Um, It's just a tool, another tool for Beijing to project its authoritarian model of governance throughout the Indo-Pacific region, and frankly, uh, to weaken a lot of uh, democracies, a lot of countries in the region. Um, Just in recent months, we've seen an explosion of debt crises in places like Sri Lanka, uh, because China has foisted on them these projects, along with huge debts that they owe to Beijing. So. Um, I think you know us participating in any China-led debt initiative in the region uh, is not on, and I think we should get out of it.
1: Well, continuing our travels around the world, Michael, there in Europe there were a number of member states of the EU and and one former member of the EU, the United Kingdom, that had been uh, bolstering their trade relationship with China. The the UK government going. To a level of allowing huawei in part of their 5g build out and then had to reverse course we're recording this shortly after uh prime minister truss announced her new cabinet give a hot take on uh the uk government the the new prime minister and the unique challenges they face drifting into a recession ahead of an energy crisis and having to backtrack from a lot of of courting of Chinese capital and 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 things that were done under the early part of the Johnson government.
0: Yeah, this is uh, a new government that's been appointed and it's walked right into a, a crisis, as you've said. Uh, they have the twin, effectively the 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 try the triplicate of uh, you know the decoupling from Brexit uh massive inflation, um, much higher than what we're seeing here in North America, and an energy crisis that's unfolding not just in the UK but on the continent. And so the government has to has its hands full, I think in the coming weeks and months as it tries to tackle it. Uh, I think in the early days of this new government, uh, the government's made some good moves to address the roots of this crisis. They've announced that they're going to allow for more drilling of gas in the North Sea, which I think is a smart move. Um, They're going to look at other uh, reliable forms of energy, such as nuclear. um, Also, I think a good move. And so I think in the early days, it looks like they're headed in the right direction. Um, But, you know, much of the continent has based its energy on a faulty assumption, which is that they can, transition to renewables in a 10-year timeframe by 2030 or 2035 and get off entirely fossil fuels. It's just simply not possible. It's not physically possible to do that. Uh, the technology is not yet there. And so I think we need to revisit, Western governments need to revisit the assumptions of how quick the energy transition is going to take place. Because if we don't, we're going to continue to see the crisis we see in Europe, where the cost of electricity in Europe is effectively thousand dollars a barrel right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Um, and that's not sustainable. Entire industries are going to collapse unless they address this very quickly, and people will freeze to death in northern Europe this winter. Uh, so it's a it's truly a crisis. I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet, uh, and I think it starts the addressing it starts by addressing the faulty assumptions that a lot of these energy policies were based on.
1: Yes, and and winter is coming. So the energy crisis, which is already pronounced, uh, is is going to get worse, as you said, particularly for uh, northern parts of Europe. Let's talk about Germany for a moment, because we're we're in this position. We've talked about Germany for gosh, since I was the Parliamentary Secretary to Trade at the end of the Harper government, uh, have been pushing us on on LNG opportunities. They have been looking. to to diversify in terms of their sources of energy. But at the same time, the Merkel coalition, often propped up by Greens, had this ideological aversion to nuclear. So the irony was a country that was proclaiming that it was going to be a leader in this sort of post-Paris lower emission economy is now burning brown coal to to provide electricity generation. So they're actually going back to some of the worst forms of hydrocarbons. You know, Ms. Merkel a few years ago essentially walked on water if you looked at the editorial pages of the New York Times or the Globe and Mail. Now a lot of those policy decisions are are playing out to the detriment and and really the potential hollowing out of Germany's industrial capacity. Speak for a moment about about that and the particular predicament Germany's in, because Germany's been paying the bills for the EU for the last decade.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's clear that Ostpolitik, as they say in Germany, uh, was a bad idea. I think that's clear. There were people calling it a bad idea over a decade ago when Nord Stream 1 came online. Um, The U.S. State Department warned the German government at the time that this was a terrible idea, that it would lead to an over-reliance on Russian energy, and that this would ultimately be a source of blackmail uh, toward Germany. And so I think it's clear that Ostpolitik was the wrong approach to deal with Russia. Um, And I also think it's clear that uh, Germany took the wrong approach on its own domestic policies when it came to nuclear power. Uh, You know, we're still in this ridiculous situation today where Germany is still on track to shut down its three nuclear reactors and keep them offline, Um, all the while an energy crisis is raging. The fact of the matter is, nuclear is a safe, reliable form of energy, Uh, and here in Ontario, we have been producing half of all our electricity from nuclear for decades. Uh, And it's been a safe, clean, environmentally sustainable source of power. And the waste is not an issue. We know how to deal with nuclear waste in a safe manner where it can be safely stored for centuries and millennia. We know how to operate these plants in a safe manner. Um, France has produced 70% of its electricity from nuclear for decades, safely and efficiently. There's no reason why other countries shouldn't be doing the same. And in fact, I'll go as far to say this, that if we are ever going to achieve emissions reductions and fight climate change, nuclear is an essential part of the energy mix. If we don't have nuclear 20, 30 years out firing electricity plants, we are not going to be able to combat emissions and we're not going to be able to combat climate change that's just a hard fact of the physical energy atoms of the universe
1: absolutely in fact um that's the same message i've been delivering for many years in a speech that if you really want to take climate change seriously it has to go beyond uh hashtags and sailing across the ocean to go to a meeting symbolically it's about long-term plans for lower emissions wherever possible while keeping quality of life and prosperity uh, at the forefront and canada could be a leader not just because we have uranium uh, and and the fuel Uh, we were the third country to have controlled nuclear fission and we've never used it in a in a weaponized sense um so we have can-do countries I met with South Koreans that 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 uh, generate using our technology. So if we were a little bit more ambitious with with uh, selling the technology, we would really help. Let, let's talk about for a second. The EU is really has been living in a bit of a fantasy land in the last number of years in terms of the economy. You you see the success for many years of of Germany mainly, but also. France and the UK, to a lesser extent, was was paying for the Italys and the Greece and, and the Portugals. But now you also have uh, Orban and, and some leaders going in a complete opposite direction to allies in Europe. You saw Orban meeting with Putin about uh, energy security. The UK has already had their Brexit. Is there risks of the eu itself coming apart amidst this energy crisis and in amidst a germany that will soon not be able to sort of supplement the 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 sort of monetary and economic union that has been in place throughout our lifetime
0: yeah i'm not sure it's at risk of completely um falling apart but there it's at risk of losing the unity that it once had and the unity on Ukraine that we've seen over the last six months. Um, It's certain you're starting to see cracks in the unity of European countries position on Ukraine, for example, in part because of their over-reliance on on Russian energy. Uh, And so I think, you know, these countries need to give a serious thought to where their energy is going to come from in the future. I think nuclear has to be a part of the mix. I think they they have to declare nuclear energy as green energy is vital to not only combating climate change, but also vital to getting off their reliance on Russian oil and gas. I think they also have to take a serious look at the highly indebted nature of their economies. If you look at the euro in recent months, it's plummeted. Mm-hmm. Uh, to near record lows against the US dollar. Um, and this is in part because they're 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 basically drowning in debt and the European Central Bank is unable to figure out what to do because they know if they hike interest rates too aggressively, uh, that's going to really hammer these economies and households that are so indebted. but on the other hand, uh, they're risking a currency crisis um, if they don't uh, tackle inflation and, uh, I, you know, they risk their risk of the euro plunging even further. So, uh, you know, they're in a very difficult position. Um, and I think it's because they've kicked the can down the road so many times over the last 10, 15 years uh, and not tackled the root economic problems that uh, that they have.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm even more pessimistic Michael. I, I really do think that with the declining euro with mounting massive debt and with the potential of the German industrial model being hollowed out because of high energy costs, uh you could see a collapse uh, economically and um you know you individual countries can't uh unpeg their their currencies and and deal with economic crisis so so what happens do do some of the wealthier countries uh feel that they're better off on their own like the UK now that now, now that there's a model for exit um and and the lack of a German roaring economy I, I really think economic realities are going to begin to descend on the EU and people's mistrust of institutions and of government that we're seeing in this sort of populist wave, um, I I would not be surprised if we saw further exits over the next 48 months um, and even a movement in Germany um, uh, against the EU. So I think we're in tumultuous times around the world for all democracies and inflation, the energy crisis will only make it worse. Um, And on that Rosy note. Let's cross the pond and talk about North America for a moment. Uh, you've probably heard me uh, use Churchill's line a lot. I'm looking at him over on my wall, <laughs> and some photographs taken by a, a veteran who was in Sunnybrook and gave me the photos. Churchill once called Canada the linchpin of uh, the United States and the UK and Europe. Um, we were key in the formation of of NATO. We've also been that bridge trying to affect U.S. interest alongside European interest. But right now, you talked about how we're irrelevant in the Pacific, not a part of the the Quad, not a part of AUKUS. Why have we, in your view, just fallen completely off the radar in the United States? And it can't all be blamed on the last Republican administration. We've seen... Uh, cancellations of pipelines. We've seen lack of consultation uh, from democratic presidents as well. Where is Canada on the radar in the United States?
0: Well, I think our standing in Washington has declined significantly over the last number of years. I think that's clear. Uh, you know, when you see things like Mexico peeling off from Canada uh, during the um, CUSMA negotiations and negotiating directly with the United States, uh, when you see um, the U.S. president calling Australia its closest, the United States' closest ally and partner, uh, when you see the fact that, you know, we're, we're the U.S. presidents are, do not have a close relationship uh, with the current Canadian prime minister, you put all these together and it's clear standing in Washington has declined. And that should worry all Canadians. You know, a a fifth of what we produce in this country every year, whether it's, you know, cars or, you know, cars or, or, or other manufactured products services is bought by the Americans and, you know, they don't buy, they don't, they don't uh, export 20% of what they produce um, to Canada. It's about 1% of what they produce is for export to Canada. So we, the onus is on us. To ensure that our standing in Washington remains relevant, I think a big factor on why in why our standing has declined in Washington is that we have not carried our fair share of the weight in recent years. Uh, nothing matters more to the Americans than the defense and security of their country, as Hillary Clinton once said. Uh, security trumps economy, and that was in the post nine eleven era, and. You know, as a result, the Americans care very deeply about how much their allies are spending on security and defense. And we have been laggards in NATO on spending on defense. uh, And that continues to be the case, almost to the point where the U.S. ambassador to Canada has publicly criticized the Canadian government here in Ottawa and said he was very disappointed with the most recent budget, uh, that it didn't fulfill our NATO obligations. Um, And so... You know, until we get to the point where we're going to carry our fair share of the weight, I think our standing in Washington is going to continue to decline.
1: Yeah, every time I've had meetings in Washington, trade and security are talked about in the same sentence. Um, It is they are not two different policy areas. Uh, Everything they do from an intellectual property standpoint right through to a traditional commodity, steel and aluminum, is all done through the guise of of security. And there's been criticism going back to the beginning of the Trudeau government. I remember Barack Obama's speech in Parliament where he mentioned NATO spending. So this is something um, NATO, we haven't been full partners in NORAD. Um, you know, years ago, we talked about northern uh, defense, uh, ballistic missile defense. It, if we want to keep that unique relationship and the trade and prosperity benefits that go alongside it, we have to ramp up defense spending. And what about the Arctic? Because the two great power rivals that we talked about at the beginning, Russia, uh, has put on more ice breaking capacity in the last few years than than, than Canada has. And China now declares itself a near Arctic state. Could we use the Arctic and our relationship with Alaska, the United States, and NORAD and the North Warning as a way to kickstart a relationship in decline?
0: Absolutely. I I I think the two things that we can bring to the table that would have an outsized that would be an outsized contribution to the NATO alliance and to our American partners is something we've already one of which one thing we've already talked about, which is to um, make Canada the energy supplier for Europe and for the United States to displace Russian oil and gas and to displace oil and gas coming from other non-democratic sources. And secondly, uh, to ensure that the defense and security of our own Arctic sphere is up to up to snuff. Um, you know, the previous government that you served in put a big emphasis on the Arctic. It Put a big effort to bring the Arctic into the public consciousness. Uh, Prime Minister Harper would go, go up there every year uh, for a tour to emphasize how important this sphere was. Us was for us, but that's fallen off the map since the current government has come into power in 2015. And I think, unfortunately, it's meant that a lot of the priorities that we need uh, to be focused on aren't aren't simply aren't getting done. Um, yeah. You mentioned NORAD. Uh, we need the F thirty five jets um for the arctic we need uh you know to beef up our uh, military presence there um and so many other things uh russia's claiming the seabed rights right up to our territorial waters yeah uh, and we have no capacity uh to counter it we've got no submarinal capacity we've got no um, technology capacity to counter it and you know people who occupy those spaces you know are the ones who are going to control them and and exploit them.
1: Yeah, two things there. Thanks, Michael. Um, first, Operation Nanook, the exercise, the sovereignty exercise that Canadian Armed Forces would do each year. Uh, Stephen Harper was there most years for Operation Nanook. In fact, Laureen went with him, large presence, which was symbolic, showing how important our sovereignty was. Justin Trudeau didn't go until the Secretary General of NATO went just a few weeks ago. So it really took NATO Kicking this government in the butt to do it. Let me be really controversial uh, for the few journalists that listen to this podcast. I loved how you described the ability for Canada to be that energy supplier for Europe. Um, Stephen Harper made that speech when we were in government, uh, calling us an energy superpower. He he gave that speech in Davos, which I guess may <laughs> we may never speak in Davos again. Who knows? But should we not be selling? that potential, including, as you talked about earlier, um, the natural gas piece of this, which is energy supply is what provides prosperity to the world. And all of the challenges Europe is facing uh, really come down to energy. If we can supply as much low carbon, nuclear, but also responsible hydrocarbons, isn't that an opportunity for us to thrive and for the The world to have less reliance on the bad regimes absolutely absolutely
0: look we we had the ridiculous spectacle of a german chancellor coming to canada for an official visit and coming here for one and one purpose only to ask the canadian government to ask the trudeau government for natural gas and he came away empty-handed and is it any wonder why we're increasingly irrelevant on the world stage? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, we, have, we have the resources to be the energy supplier for North America and for Europe. Uh, and we've got to get out of this mentality of a splendid isolation that we've been living in in recent years. You know, we, we are, from a, from a cultural point of view, we are isolated here uh, and we think we can continue to live this way. The reality is the world is interconnected and if we don't play our fair share of our role on the world stage you know we're going to suffer the consequences in the decades to come and we're starting to see early warning signs of that and being cut out of defense and security treaties in the indo-pacific region Uh, we're starting to see you know allies call us out publicly on our lack of uh, commitment to the alliance uh, and so we should take these as warning signs, and you know, really step up to the plate in a much bigger way than we have been.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Nothing shows how irrelevant we've been in the United States than for the new president to cancel Keystone XL on his first day in office. Only a few months later to be asking OPEC to increase production uh, <laughs> to meet the energy crisis, and you're talking a lot of OPEC players bad actors in terms of human rights, environmental responsibility. And that gets us on to our last topic that I wanted to talk to you about was really this this challenge for democracies around the world right now in this rival big power emergence with Russia and China. We see expansion of authoritarian models. As you said, China's been taking theirs on the road with Belt and Road. Freedom House in their Freedom in the World Report for 2022 Confirm that only 20% of the world's population live in free countries. And this is the 16th consecutive year that there's been a decline in global freedom. Talk about that now for a moment, particularly as Western countries are facing a, a confidence crisis in their institutions, in their democratic process. What is at risk if the West doesn't start stepping up for our interests and and values at a time when they seem to be a minority on the global stage?
0: Well, what's at risk, quite simply, is the prosperity and justice and freedom that we have enjoyed as societies for the last number of years. Uh, That's what's at risk. Uh, If you look at the... Western societies and the principles on which they're based, you know, freedom, democracy, and the rule of law, those fundamental principles, which were hard fought for and hard won over many centuries, have laid the foundation for what has been the most prosperous, just period in human history. Uh, Billions of people today live in a, a level of wealth that their ancestors could only have dreamed of, live in A live longer, healthier lives than any previous generation in human history. And it's largely because of the innovation, the the knowledge, uh, you know, the governance that has been developed uh, that underpins many of our, that underpins all of our democracies. And so if we abandon those fundamental principles, we are putting at risk in the longer term, all of the things that billions of people have come to enjoy. And I and I and you and others believe this strongly, but we have many others who don't believe that anymore, who we have a, somewhat of a crisis of confidence in these fundamental principles. Uh, many people uh, look to other systems like China's centralized authoritarianism. Others look to other systems and you know, suggest that there's something attractive about that. Um, I think what we need to do is to be confident about the basic principles that we've are based on and to work hard to re-articulate them for the challenges that we face today. And I think if we do that, we'll get through this period of time that we're going through. uh, And I think we'll get to the other side in a much brighter future where democracies are once again ascendant. You know, as you mentioned, Freedom House and others have uh, chronicled the decline of uh, democracies over the last decade and a half. And this is very much a concern um but it's something we've seen before if you look at the period of the great depression uh democracies were back on their heels during the 19 during that time as well during the 1930s in fact you know the rise of fascism in in central europe and asia to many looked much more attractive and we had people at the time arguing that fascism was a better system uh than you know democracies um were and in the early days of World War II, it looked like democracies were going to falter, and that fashion was going to triumph. But we all know what happened. Eventually, we got our act together, and we defeated fascism, both in Europe and in Asia. And that laid the foundation for prosperity for a good seven or eight decades. So we're we're back to the future in some ways. We're back on our heels, but we have to be confident about the principles on which we're based and fight hard to re-articulate them.
1: Never surrender. A a great chat with going around the world with the Honourable Michael Chong lets me sneak in two appropriate Winston Churchill quotes uh, to this discussion. Um, And in many ways, what you've talked about, you know, meeting our commitment on NATO, uh, we should meet our commitments on climate change, on uh, development. Um, Canada, I think, really could make the case for democracy by saying we stand by our word. And that means we're going to play a role, whether it's on the fields of of Vimy Ridge, uh, Kandahar, uh, or 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 the South China Sea. That we we have to be willing to to stand for those values and interests with our allies around the world, and and live up to that commitment. Um, so I think I've taken enough of your time. Um, I think the, your last summary hit it perfectly. Um, Human rights, democratic freedoms, the rule of law, as you said, were hard fought, including by the soldiers both of your parents encountered, liberating the Netherlands or fighting to to hold on to to Hong Kong. These are things worth fighting for and values that we should be proud to wear on our sleeve. So as as these angry times continue, I think we're going to need Continued smart voices like yours to, to make the case for those rights, but to make the case for Canada. So thank you, Michael. It's great to be here, Aaron. It's great to be with you and, ladies and gentlemen. When we launch this podcast, it'll be just around the return of Parliament, and so we will have a new leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, we may have uh, a new Shadow Cabinet. I certainly hope that Michael Chong remains in his role. I think he, as you've seen in this podcast. He has a wealth of knowledge and he's thoughtful in coming up with policies and positions that Canada should be adopting. Shadow is something that we all wanted to drop from our titles in the last election, which was taking place a year ago now, um, because I really do think we need a government that is going to be taking these issues seriously, whether our most important relationship with the United States, whether the challenges Europe's facing, the rise of of the great powers Russia and China and how we deal with them. These are troubling times. It's going to take great leadership to get us through them. And on many of these things, I know Michael and, and many of us are always willing to put Canada first, including being bipartisan to achieve some of these objectives. So if you have any comments on this podcast or any suggestions, the blue skies will be This fall, tackling issues that are important to Canada, important to you, and important to the world. Send me a direct message. Rate this podcast if you like it. Make a recommendation. But thank you very much for listening to the Blue Skies Political Podcast.